Greetings from the north, and welcome to a new forum conversation. This time with world-leading scholar on esoterica Tobias Churton. He was educated at Oxford University, is a faculty lecturer at Exeter University, and was the brains behind the curriculum of their esoteric studies, sponsored by recently deceased Professor Dr. Goodrick Clark. Churton worked for many years as the right-hand scholar to the Dutch bibliophile industrialist Jost Rittman of the Rittmans Library. He's worked as a producer and filmmaker for many years, doing documentaries and TV programs for BBC, Channel 4, Border TV and others. He's a best-selling author who's done both fiction and non-fiction and poetry. Is a composer, musician, lecturer, and former magazine editor. Churton has authored 19 books for the open market and is best known for his research into Western esotericism, in particular such hermetic streams as Gnosticism, alchemy, Rosicrucianism, Freemasonry, and Christian mysticism and has published gold-standard biographies on such people as William Blake, Georgi Gurdjieff, Alistair Crowley, Elias Ashmole, and John Theophilus de Sacrelliers. Today, we speak with him to cast light upon aspects of our series From King Solomon to Arcadia, where the Rosicrucian movement is an important backdrop to understand the big picture of this mystery. Tobias helps us better grasp the context of the Rosicrucian manifestos, who could have been behind, what they sought to achieve, how it was received, what it led to, and what relations this had to other movements of the time. As a detour, we also converse about the sexual aspects of ancient Gnosticism. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Tobias. Pleasure to be here, Al. And it's such an honor to have you with us. Now, I must confess that I discovered you through the works of Peter Amundsen and his research. Oh, really? I mean, yes. a couple of weeks ago, we had a really nice lunch. Oh, because I saw his first TV series on his discovery, where you were interviewed. Yeah. So I did a little research on you, and it dawned upon me that you are one of the leading figures in the fields of scholarly esoterics. Yes. You're, you're based in Exeter, right? If lecturing Exeter, yes, but I, I, I don't live in Exeter, mm. for what it's worth. <laughs> Nor do I live in the invisible house of the Holy Spirit most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> That's disappointing. <laughs> I know. I, I try to pay a visit occasionally. You know. That's good. That's good. Now, speaking of universities, you did study theology at Oxford, isn't that right? That's correct, yes. yes. Yeah, about when was this? 1978, I went up to Oxford, and uh, I graduated in 1981. Hmm. I was passed out into the harsh world. 
right. to make my way. Well, uh, I'm asking because one of our pet guests here, he's um, he got his doctor degree at Oxford, and I think it was in around the same time period. You never met uh, an American called Joseph Farrell when you were lurking around in Oxford. No, I didn't know one single person who was interested in esoteric history. Absolutely no one. When I went to Oxford, I was offered the chance, instead of doing a paper, as they called it, I, I could do a dissertation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to do magic and the Old Testament. And I was told within a week that there was no tutor at Oxford who could mark such a paper, such a dissertation. There was no one authoritative enough. It, it, I was told it hadn't been studied since the 1890s. Wow. And I'm, I think they were talking about Fraser, J.G. Fraser's Golden Bower. Mm. And that was very upsetting for me because I thought going to Oxford, I was going to expand my mind. And I ended up having to spend huge amounts of time studying the patristic, uh, the church fathers and all this sort of thing, yeah. which I did like a good boy. And uh, dull and boring as it was, I always felt that I was only allowed one side of the picture. And I was aware intuitively and through intimation that there was another story that I desperately wanted to get near. And it wasn't until my third year that I, I found a book in Pusey House Library called The Occult uh, Philosophy in the Renaissance, which was a little book, mm. one of the last books of Francis Yates. And that was uh, a delight. And uh, it came right at the end of my course, so I... I had no way of bringing it into my official studies at that point. Mm. Frances Yates, of course, is this famous uh, scholar on esoterics. Yeah, she was a pioneer and she made many great errors, but she had a good write. She had great writing style mm. and was a hell of a personality. Uh, but she was one of these, she was a one-man band or one-woman band. You know, she didn't develop, as they say, fail not of an heir. Uh, she, she didn't produce progeny. Mm. She wanted her books to be, uh, her books were her children. And everyone knows that the Giordano Bruno book is a wonderful book. Mm. And it's, it's upset scientists, historians of sciences since it was published in 1964. It still annoys them hugely. And uh, in England particularly, if you advance the view that magic was a component of scientific revolution, you will not be invited for dinner. Yeah, they still have this paradigmatic uh, blockage. It's incredible how like the Vatican... Yeah. The royal society, you know, the, the scientific establishment has become the new Vatican. Mm. And they can, they don't torture you on a rack. They ignore you. And they discourage your academic career. Yeah. You know, and there's an Anglo-American axis to this. Because the Americans tend to follow in certain aspects in academic matters and a British lead. Mm. And the British lead has been for a long time now quite hostile to hermetic philosophy. And still, you guys are managing to get this out as a subject within the system. You can actually study these things. Uh, I'm suffering from it. Um, I, we, we saw, I said, you know, I'm a kind of dissident because 
the university doesn't want an esoteric uh, subject being taught. Hmm. There are real enemies of this subject in Great Britain. But haven't you managed to get esotericism out there as an official? Uh, you can now be a bachelor in esoterics, a master in esoterics, etc. Not since Nicholas Goodrick Clark died, no. Really? No. So he's going back? Yeah, I'm afraid so. Wow. I didn't know that. Ah, uh, no, it's amazing. We have, wow. you know, the popular culture in this country is anti-intellectual. There aren't many English scholars specializing in this field. Um, the only ones were Christopher McIntosh, yeah. who now lives in Germany, and uh, Nick uh, Goodrick Clark didn't actually specialize in, in the subject, but he was very interested in it. He, he actually was a fundraiser. Wow. He raised funds to set up things in universities. Wow. So in terms of British talent in this field, very little after Frances Yates died in the early 80s. I mean, she really founded the idea. Yeah, yeah but what about Dr. Who, uh, he lives in, uh, he teaches in Colgate right now. What's his name again? Justin Godwin? Yes, Godwin. Well, he's American, isn't he, really? I mean, he, we I think of him as an American uh, source. Right, so. right, right. Well, even Solzhenitsyn uh, was known, <laughs> you know, I feel, in a way, like uh, like a dissident Great. in the intellectual world of my country. Well, if you weren't, you probably wouldn't have that much to bring to the table. <laughs> Because in this day and age, if you're not a dissident, <laughs> you're not a deep thinker. Oh, nicely. <laughs> That's my claim. Thanks, Al. <laughs> <laughs> I feel a lot better now. <laughs> Well, it's so funny because there there is this chap that we've interviewed uh, many times, Joseph Farrell, and he studied patristics in the same time period at Oxford as you did. So that's it's good to see Oxford has produced at least two great heads from that uh, time period. You're too kind. <laughs> You're too kind, Al. Too kind. It was a very difficult period to emerge in. Uh, looking back, it, it seems... Neanderthal, you know, it seems incredible. The theology in my college at Brazenose, where Elias Ashmole was a member of Brazenose College, I found out later. Wow. Um, you know, the, the chaplain there was uh, an Anglo-Catholic bigot who simply did not, I mean, he simply had no concept of a spiritual religion that was respectable outside of the Catholic concept. And today that seems extraordinary to me, but uh, at the time it was normal. So they had true believers as uh, teachers. <clears throat> I wasn't allowed to read the gospel in the chapel because he found out that I was interested in Alistair Crowley. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you oh, there was a oh, there uh, moves to get... Uh, that didn't hurt, hurt your degrees? One should expect them to punish you. Well, I was nearly, I was given what were called penal collections. I mean, this is, this won't be of much interest to your academic listeners, but, uh, because we've all been through this rubbish in any way. But I was given penal collections. In Oxford, that means if you, they set a, a mark, pass mark, that you're not told what it is. And if you don't meet that pass mark on an instant examination, it's not the official examinations, it's a, a punitive examination. If you don't meet this pass mark, you're sent out of the college. Wow. Now, when I read about Johann Valentin Andrei being kicked out of Tübingen because he wrote a rude poem about one of the <laughs> tutor's wives, 
you know, in, in around 1605. Yeah. I, I, I shook his hand because, you know, it's very difficult for the free spirit to operate within academic concept. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Professor Goodwin, he wrote an article once that I think should have been uh, much more widespread. I think it's called Priests, Professors and Gurus, where he, right. he kind of uh, blows the lid on uh, today's academicians. It's nice to know you're not alone when you hear these things. I, oh, I, yeah, yeah. There is a handful I, of you. The problem has always been uh, one of isolation. You know? Yeah, I guess. But he argues that there's basically two types of teachers. There is the Saturnian types, which is are these strict dogma people <laughs> and then there's the hermetic types where which kind of makes stuff come alive colourful. right we're colorful yeah. Yeah. yes your first lot your um, they think that they've got the pure white light right you know and if you want the pure white light you have to go through the spectrum of the colors first mm, good point. if you're not happy with colorful thinking don't think you're going to reach the white light <laughs> <laughs> That's my view. <laughs> very, very well put. Fortunately for our listeners, then, uh, we picked the right guy to brief us upon a very important topic. I mentioned that I discovered you through Amundsen's work, uh, and we've been covering that in depth here. And uh, to give people in general who maybe have not good enough knowledge about the background of Peter's research, you are the perfect guest because we cannot go a meter in this area without encountering the Rosicrucians. Mm. So we are going to try to make visible these invisibles. And this talk with you today is based upon your book on the subject, which, uh, as far as I've managed to discover, has two titles. One is called Invisibles, the True History of the Rosicrucians, yeah. and the other one is called The Invisible History of the Rosicrucians. Is this the same book? Uh, what's the first here? Yeah. I wanted to call it Invisibles, not The Invisibles. There's a difference, but mm. Lewis Masonic published it, and uh, you know, I said it's not about The Invisibles like it's The Aliens. It's Invisibles in the sense that you would say Imponderables. Right. It's dealing with this whole concept of invisible forces. Yeah. But the American title, which they insisted on, The Invisible History of the Rosicrucians, yeah, that's okay. I don't mind that. No, but, but it reminds me a little of Paul Foster Kay's title. I think he has something similar. Of what? Uh, the True and Invisible. Yeah, The True and Invisible History of the Rosicrucians. I think it's his book. Is that what he called it? I think so. Is that what he called? I did check it. Yeah, I think so. I've I've read that book. Yeah, it's just it's just um, Paul Foster Case's imagination. You know, there's no there's no history in it. Well, it's basically tarot, isn't it? Yeah. But anyway, I think the second one, which I did for American publisher, is better served with footnotes, uh, with endnotes, and um, I, I had time to revise revise it. So I think the second one, The Invisible History of the Rosicrucians, is the text to have. It's also better illustrated. That's the Inner Traditions publication, right? Yes, I think that's that's the better book, the better version of the book. Uh, I, that's just my view. Yeah. What inspires, inspires. Yeah, right. But well, people can take a sneak peek at your quality if they check out the movie called The True Story of the Rosicrucians. 
I, I saw that, and not only do you go into very meticulous details, but you're also painting a very beautiful uh, aesthetic picture that makes the movie very easy to follow. So for anyone who want to check out Churton's work, maybe you should start with that uh, to see the depths of his take on the Rosicrucians. And it's also illustrated with beautiful tunes. Oh. Is that Debussy, that beautiful music in the background, of course, the piano? It's La Cathedrale Anglutie. Right. I mean, it's just <laughs> the most Gnostic. I do a whole chapter on that in my book about Eric Satie and Debussy. Nice, nice. Yeah, and some of my own music in this film, too. <laughs> you're making music, too. Yes, yes. How could you not, you know, poetry? Yeah, your old classmate that I mentioned, Pharrell, he, too, he plays the harpsichord. What's your instrument? Uh, guitar, keyboards. Today gives you everything. And you compose. Yes, I compose, absolutely. Cool. I've just finished an album. Great. And, uh, I've just done the music for a William Blake movie we're trying to get made about William Blake. And uh, I've recorded and orchestrated all that. Yeah. yeah, it's just one art, you know, poetry, painting and music, the three powers in man for conversing with paradise, which the flood did not sweep away. Those are yeah. William Blake's words. You can't, if you're in touch with what he called the poetic genius, which is the spiritual inspiration of the higher mind, uh, you cannot avoid expressing it right. uh, in in the classical ways. So it's you're naturally driven to image-making and music, and, of course, prose and poetry. Poetry yeah. above all, really. Yeah, I, I guess if you're infatuated with one of the muses, remember the others are her sisters, so it's a very exactly. short step from one muse to another. It's a very <laughs> crowded bed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, speaking of that, you just have a book out on the sexual aspects of the Gnostics. Now, we will lobby to get you on later to, to give us a full account of that in relation to a series we're going to have on sacred sexuality. But would you very briefly now, before we begin on the Rosicrucians, pitch that book for us? Uh, well, it came out in September and it's mm -hmm. called Gnostic Mysteries of Sex. That's the American title. I wanted to call it something else, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that matters. That's funny. What would you want to call it? I want to call the sex gnostics. <laughs> yeah. Well, never mind the bollocks. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Yes. But and it started because the publisher asked me. I said, "What would you like me to write about?" You know, I was feeling generous. Uh, and he, I, he said, "Would I'd like a book on Barbalo? Barbalo, you know, the gnostic." archangel or goddess who's identified with Sophia, mm. the wisdom. So I said, yeah, that's a good idea. Nobody's really done this. Uh, nobody's identified Barbalo as a figure properly. Mm. Oh. So that was the basis of the book. And in the process, I thought, well, it's time somebody unraveled this maze, this, uh, this spaghetti of Gnostic doctrines and actually show how the different groups operated and how they differed and really trying to try and sort that thing out. Mm. And so the book is really, I looking at it now, I would say if you're going to study what's called Gnosticism, start here because you'll get the authentic spermatic gnosis, which many of the books today tend to follow a kind of liberal feminist line and they've softened, they've diluted the Gnostic uh, challenge. 
to a very great degree. I've just tried to restore it to its um, to its explicit content. Ah. Yeah, it's the difference between a kind of Disney romance and um, Last Tango in Paris. <laughs> this is the Last Tango in Paris of Gnostic books. This one is okay. Oh, that's it. <laughs> right. So we've had already a program. It's not out yet, but we had a program on the Gnostics. Uh, but I, I'd like to interview you on the sexual aspects here about uh, sacred sexuality. Tantra. Yeah, well, one of the problem. Yeah, this is right because one of the problems with the modern scholarship since post Elaine Pagels on Gnosticism is the sexual material is has been completely ignored. You right. know, there are there are a couple of scholars. April DeConnick is very good on it. But the fact of the matter is, is what we've, what the world has been presented with is the soft, hermetic, Valentinian notion. <laughs> the vested version. Well, it's, it's, yeah, but they've got it totally wrong. They still think they're talking about spiritual philosophy in the uh, Platonic sense. Yeah. But, you know, the Gospel of Thomas, for example, which is written about as if it's a nice, Johannine, mystical, nice, Gnostic. Exactly. All that stuff about, you know, the kingdom of heaven is spread out upon the earth, but men do not see it. Oh, it's lovely. But the fact of the matter is, is, is it is a deeply heretical book. Mm. Not because it contradicts uh, the creeds, but because it's actually talking, but you've got to know the key, mm. and it's very simple key, it's talking about spermatic gnosis. It's talking about sexual substances as the containers of the logos. That's so interesting. That's what it's actually writing about. Huh. I guess it gives a little physical aspect to the chemical wedding also. Well, if you like, you know, but it's a long way from Johann Valentin Andrei, you know, if we, which presumably we'll talk about today. Yeah, but I'm getting to the, you know, making love with Sophia aspect. It, it may have ended up as symbolism, but... Uh, it, you have the very strange thing that the, the man who invented the Rosicrucian mythology dissociated himself with the interpretation of it. Yeah. Yeah, I'll ask you about that. Oh, uh, I have to say one more thing. Peter Lavender, the historian, he just came out with a book claiming, where he illustrates actually that Thomas Vaughan's uh, book on alchemy it can be decoded with the help of Tantra. And he gives the key actually in that book. I haven't read it myself yet, and I'm going to interview him on that as well as read it. Hmm. But maybe of interest to you since you're writing on this. Have you seen my sex Gnostic book? I saw it like uh, 50 minutes before we talked when I went through your uh, book. Uh, right. Because there's a whole chapter on Tantra in it. Right. So that's why we need you on later for this. I'll give you a few months and I'll, I have so many guests uh, and, and I can't read up on everyone, but I'm going to buy the book because that's right. a very fresh take. I, I think it's the first one I've seen on the market, actually. Yeah, it is the only, it's the only one. Yeah. That really, really, I, and I go into it in detail and it, it's quite a, it's a detailed read and, and somebody said it's really for scholars. Well, no, it's for the intelligent layman, but mm. I looked at it recently and I thought there's some really the stuff that you don't have to be a scholar to get the power of this mm. uh, but I do I insist on dealing with everything I wanted I, I did want to sort the whole area out mm. and I also identify Barbalo which no one's ever done before which is a exciting trip so you know it's all there you want to know the Gnostic the Gnostics were very into sex you know I mean mm. it's Take that out, and you're not talking about Gnostics. Mm. But we're talking both uh, 
you know, in the East, you have the same thing in, in aspects of Hinduism. But here we're talking actually both physically and metaphorically. No, actually, I think the Kundalini concept and the Tantra actually are from Gnostic teachers. In date terms, the Gnostics are first. Yeah. I found texts nobody had realized in Hippolytus, which are descriptions in detail of sexual magic. But Hippolytus and the fathers thought they were reading philosophy. They just <laughs> didn't get it's It's there. Wow. Yeah, I'm serious. I mean, uh, that was a revelation. That was one of the, me- the revelations. Right. No, they were, they were, they were quite. They were being specific. It wasn't metaphor. They were, they were talking about practices. Mm. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. Because everybody credits that to Tao and tantric traditions. It's pre-tantric. Mm. The the first tantric writings, are the earliest of the 16th century. Yeah, what you're saying is huge. This needs to be be uh, get, get get known out there because first of all, it leads credence to a guy you've been writing about the Royce Crowley take on on gnosis. Yeah, yeah. But but even even bigger than that is that when I look at the ancient times and I see the Pythagorean stream that uh, and Apollonius of Tiana and all these people it's like a non-sexual aspect it's like something yes. is lost there but but would you say that they did that they belong to this current or that they were an anti-current or an alternative current who, to who? the sexual gnosis well the what I call the Pythagoreans, but that would include Platonics, Neo, Neo-Pythagoreans, Neo-Platonics. Everyone in the tradition of Parmenides, Pythagoras, Empedocles, Apollonius of Tiana, all these people. Because mm. I, I can see sexual aspects in the teachings if you look for the metaphor, but there's so much which is lost. So I'm starting to wonder if there really was a sexual tradition all the way up to when the Christians were hijacked. And they purged that. Or if there were two parallel traditions prior to Christianity, one with an emphasis on the sexual aspects and one that were more Puritan. What do you think? Yeah, it's a very, very difficult question on the basis of the evidence. Um, Yeah. I, I think with the Gnostic tradition, you have got evidence. Interestingly... And my contention in the book is that the the best evidence for the sexual gnosis is actually given by their enemies, mm. not a, not as a, not opposing it, but actually accidentally, that they reveal to anyone who knows about the subject that they didn't understand the traditions they were they were confirmed. they did to a certain extent. Tertullian was smart; he was a lawyer; he, he understood those. Uh, there was a strong sexual component. Irenaeus is, is a little bit blind. Hippolytus is almost completely blind to what he's describing. Uh, and it's quite obvious that you can present a sexual, spiritual doctrine in mythological terms. Now, we, if we're going to go back before that to the pre-Socratics, like you're suggesting, Parmenides, hmm. I don't know as we have sufficient if, if a sexual gnosis was a, an esoteric tradition in pre-Socratic times, then they wouldn't have been writing about it. Exactly. Because this is one of the most dangerous doctrines that you can know. Mm. And this is what I'm... It's fascinating. I mean, it's clear to me that Simon Magus, for example, was probably, probably an adept 
of sexual magic. But he lived at the same time as Apollonius and Jesus. Yeah, exactly. I mean, who's to say they weren't also? Yeah, that's what I'm starting to think now. But the the problem is, is do you want to prove it? You can't. These were. I, I, it's like when I've been writing about Gurdjieff. It's absolutely crystal clear to me that Gurdjieff was a Freemason. Huh. Of what of what group? I don't know. I would hazard a guess that it was something like the ancient and primitive right. Well, what about the Bektashi? Don't you think he was? Of course, yeah? absolutely. I, I make that point. Oh, oh. Hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, and the, the the Bektashi had were already describing a lodge as uh, as as a path in Turkish, the very use of the word, and the Naqshbandi uh, Sufis also uh, tie in completely. I I whether and the Druze, I'm sure. Yeah, you know, Gurdjieff, a bit like Alistair Crowley, is very anti-theosophy. He's anti-spiritualism, but he never says a word against Freemasonry or Rosicrucianism. This is a this is a very major point. Good point. And because most of all the books on Gurdjieff have been written by Gurdjieffians, uh, with one exception. And and that's not a well anyway. And his own autobiography. <laughs> well that's not an autobiography, it's it's, it's a gospel. <laughs> but he's not a Gurdjieff and he is Gurdjieff. <laughs> he's Gurdjieff. And and you know, and if you read that as you should read the Gospels, i.e. It is spiritual story mm. with some history lurking in the background. You you are all right. If you think it's history, you're an idiot because it wasn't written to be history. But um, and he was he claimed to be in touch with the ancient Gnostic traditions, didn't he? No, he never said. He never uses the word Gnostic ever. Not once. He doesn't. Hmm. Interesting. Well, he says Christian, old original Christian traditions. He uses the word Essene. Essene. Yes. Yes. That's it. Yeah. He knows he knows about the stuff, but he's a mason. I I'm strongly convinced that, of course, to be a, a Russian-speaking person in his period of his development, which is the 1890s, it was illegal to be a mason in Russia until 1906, and he kept with it. He, like so many masons of those days, he just didn't tell that he was a mason. You just didn't. But there were there were Martinists in the court of the. Um, of course, there were. Uh, Papus the, was there. Yeah, they they could uh, be called Masons. So. Well, they weren't. Yeah, and there were lodges in St. Petersburg. Oh no, no, this is not an issue. Yeah, but it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't something you were allowed to write about. Hmm, okay. Okay, but after 1906, you could write about it until the revolution. So there was a sort of brief period. It was an 11-year period. And, of course, most of that was the First World War anyway. Mm. But anyway, the point being is esoteric traditions are esoteric for a reason. They are esoteric. The reason we, One of the reasons we're fascinated is because it is secret and you've got to use your imagination. And this mm. is the danger. Some people's imagination is too imaginative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I'm glad we killed some myths today. Uh, you, you seem to be worried about the myth among neo-esotericians, but I'm more worried about the conspiracy branding of everything esoteric. It's like it's a reaction going on. You're right. It's, it's and terrible. I, I, I'd be happy to address that subject also any time you like. Uh, yeah, you're right, of course. Yeah, so uh, we've had a little excursion now, but before we go... Well, you could say that uh, what we talked about is relevant to the Rosicrucians, 
In fact, it all entangles into each other. Mm. Rosicrucians, masonry, Martinism, and, and, and it's also reckoned to be uh, descendants. They all descend from, from the Gnostics anyway, uh, one of the uh, descendants. But, but before we go to the classical Rosicrucians then, what about um, the other Gnostic books you've written then? Well, this, there was the original book I did was the book of the TV series Gnostics. Okay. Um, that came out in 87, and that seems to have an immense influence on people, huh. even though it's one of my simplest books, but it was also my first. Maybe that's advantage. Um, that has had a huge effect. Then I did um, also Gnostic Philosophy. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. That's a much more reasoned book in the sense that there's considerably more detail mm. and its its expanse is much broader and a lot of things are explained like Sufism, Kabbalah, how these relate to the Gnostic tradition. Alistair Crowley, Jimi Hendrix, John Lennon, all this, uh, this whole concept of deviant spiritual thought is I brought that together and show its unity. So if you have these feelings or intuitions, you can look at this and say, well, I'm part of a, you know, the church hasn't got it all. The Catholic, you know, the mainstream church doesn't have the monopoly on spiritual history. We have a spiritual history and it goes right back, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's that was the purpose of that book. Then I did a book on the Gospel of Judas, which my was because... That came out in 2006 when the Gospel of Judas was first published and a, an Italian publisher wanted a, wanted a popular quick book. You know, <laughs> what is this Gospel of Judas? Yeah. Is it going to bring down the Vatican? So, and that was published in Italian, first of all. So there's that one as And your Rosicrucian book, uh, you, you just said it was called The Invisibles, uh, and that's now due for a French uh, translation? It's being translated into French as we speak, mm. and I'm thrilled about that because you know how hermetically sealed French literary culture is. Yeah. Uh, they would deny this, I dare say. But anyway, it's be, they, they, they generally they think, well, if there's a subject, uh, the fr there must be a Frenchman who's written on it. <laughs> so <laughs> we, don't, yeah. we don't need roast um, beef. You know, we don't mm. need the roast beef to write about these things. We have our, you know, yeah. fair enough. Yeah. Um, but here's a credit. You know, somebody out there in France has actually said, well, this is actually a, a book that French people must know about. And I'm extremely touched and grateful that that a, a leading French Freemason has decided to translate uh, the Rosicrucian book because many Freemasons want to know what are the facts behind the Masonic Rosicrucian uh, relationship. Yeah. And they're right to want to know because it, it's a fascinating story. Yeah, and there's so much myth going around. I, I made it my desire a long time ago to... My ancestor, Ralph Churton, who was a, a, a cleric in the 18th century, said, the only thing worth contending for is the truth. Mm. And I make that my the basis of all my work, I always think the truth is not only stranger than fiction, but considerably more exciting. So I'm, I strip away. Oh yeah, totally agree. Yeah, I would also remind uh, people of uh, Blavatsky's uh, famous adage, there is no religion higher than truth. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess we're in the same church, huh? Yeah, you know, she was amazing. Yeah, she, she said, 
great things like that, and yet mm. uh, contributed hugely to the myth. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's the paradox of yeah. human beings, I guess. Yes, uh, mm. I think uh, theosophy actually has a lot to answer for. <laughs> they do, they do, but all diss them, and I often catch myself uh, being the devil's never, lawyer. Never diss Blavatsky herself. It's always the same with these things. It's always the followers, you know. Yeah. She was an original, adventurous, omnivorous mind, yeah. and she was highly creative and courageous. And we we must love Helena Blavatskaya. I mean, she only got that dreadful name because she made a bad marriage to an Armenian diplomat. But um, she had a fantastic family, great connections, very interesting story, mm. wonderful woman. Uh, in a way, it's a pity she she got mixed up with the whole Indian thing, I think. But that's had a very good effect as well. I mean, can we imagine George Harrison without Madame Blavatsky? Would there have been George Harrison? Would there have been all those Beatle interest in in transcendental subjects? We just had a glo- – it's all down to Blavatsky. Yeah, but could we imagine any uh, renaissance in the field of spirituality after theosophy if it wasn't for that? I mean, yeah. she really yeah. broke in the doors, didn't she? Crack yeah. the, the consensus. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I think – I mean, we have the, we have the gift of perspective. Yeah. But exactly. she, she had tremendously positive effect. But I think theosophy as a, as a movement, especially because it tied itself very closely early on to what they call spiritualism, mm. has also, you know, created a kind of a barrel of new new misformed snakes of various kinds. And yet, of course, out of that comes you know uh, originality and and individualism. So yeah. I'm just, I, perhaps I'm a bit purist. <laughs> <laughs> we'll I always see. like the drink when it's first poured. I don't, I, you know what I mean? Yeah. I like it, you know, from the, from the fountain. Yeah. Well, there's nothing shameful with quality, huh? Yeah. Now, um, before we start uh, on the Rosicrucians, just one more question about your video series. Is that a, a, simply a reading from your book or is it a particular adaption for that film? What the little film I did on the true story, you yeah, mean? yeah, that was a sort of independent piece. It's a long story to this, and I, I don't want to. It'd be bore, boring, I think. Uh, I tried. I originally back in 1989, 90, a Dutch Rosicrucian enthusiast and library founder, Joost Rittman. Oh, the Rittman Library. Yeah, yeah. Yes, mm. I worked with him for for some years. Mm from 1986 and I was kind of the house filmmaker and uh, he wanted a film on the Rosicrucians to go with an exhibition that he was planning and um, all sorts of terrible things happened to his business around the time I was supposed to get going so the whole thing got it, it all got shelved yeah. and, and taken uh, over by the state right yeah it was a disaster you know it was really catastrophic mm. and had a Quite a big effect. You see, because by working with Rittman, I'd, I'd actually scuttled my chances in British television because there was a lot of jealousy. I was working for the Dutch millionaire. Wow. So, you know, uh, British TV is, well, I won't go into it now, but um, my whole thing was use television, you know, to its highest ability, uh, which was quixotic in retrospect, but there was a chance in the 80s because there was a new channel, Channel 4, which had which had an intellectual purity about it to begin with. 
But of course, as with all these things, the the enemy moves in. It degenerated pretty quickly. It degenerates, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, absolutely right. But anyway, I was in on the golden age of that. I, I was right. there at the, at, the, at the beautiful point. Anyway, he wanted a film on the road. It never got made. And I hate not finishing a project. And for years and years, I wanted to do this thing. Then I was running a magazine for the Freemasons of Great Britain, United Grand Lodge, called Freemasonry Today. And somebody wanted we did a we did a series on the Rosicrucians. And when I wrote that those articles, and I went to Germany to make photographs. I thought, well, these articles actually are a nice basis for a rather clear film. Rather than trying to tell the entire story of the Rosicrucians, which is hugely complex and could fill 20 volumes easily, I thought, well, by doing it as a journalistic exercise, it gave me a framework. And then, so I I then made the film myself uh, just in my room in Litchfield where I was living. And uh, and we put it out and, and Lewis Masonic published it. And no TV people would take it, of course, in Britain. So... It was just for people who were really interested. Uh, that's how that particular production came out. It was just a question of I wanted to do it. So, so when did it come out? That came out in about 2002, I think. And your book? The book came out in 2008. The book specifically on the Rosicrucians. Yes. Hmm. That came out in 2008. Something, I mean, it was very strange. You know, in the 90s, you couldn't get anything done. And then suddenly I left the Freemasons magazine and because my daughter was born and I took this John Lennon attitude, you know, you should be a house husband. I felt <laughs> that. And uh, I, I left the business of, of making a living and, and uh, I played house husband very seriously. And then, uh, of course, it doesn't work. <laughs> and I then, you know, how did I get – and I started writing. Mm. And uh, that's when it, my writing didn't really, I didn't, I'd written three books before, but suddenly in 2002, I started writing and since then I haven't stopped. Ah. And I've been trying to make up for the 10 lost years in the 90s, nearly 10 years that I consider lost. Yeah, you're very productive. But you also have another movie, movies. You, you made uh, one, yeah. you made one also on Gnostics. Uh, you made a movie on them too. Right. Well, in 87, I did the Gnostics TV series for Channel 4. And that was a best-selling book in England. That was number two bestseller in England. But after that, uh, there was a reaction in television, which has a lot of political aspects to it. <laughs> and uh, mm. ni- the 90s for me were an incredibly difficult period. I'd reached the top of my profession in television and... Um, I, I worked with a guy called John Ranler, who was head of Danish Channel 2. He was the program commissioner. And he and I worked together in television for about five years after Channel 4 started. Mm. And when he left Channel 4, the whole thing went kaput. And Margaret Thatcher had set up a thing called the Broadcasting Act of 1990. Oh, my God. And that removed the requirement, the requirement that, independent television companies should make religious programs well that meant you could only work for the bbc on religion and the bbc is to put it you know appallingly conservative yeah especially now uh, after blair yeah and it's appalling it's impossible they're liberal left uh, politically 
And they're not interested in esoteric Gnostic things. They regard it as elitist, you know, that horrible word, elitist. Mm. Uh, and it's not, they have decided it's not popular material. And yet, Da Vinci Code comes out and exactly. becomes the biggest selling book in the world. Yeah. Uh, but they, they don't want that to happen, so they pretend it hasn't happened. Mm. Yeah, I mean, even, uh, was it Henry Lincoln? I think he worked for, for BBC, one of those. Well, guys. that was back in the 60s. Yeah. And in the early 70s, you still had a few brain. I used to work for the BBC uh, myself. I would work for BBC Religious Television in 1985. And uh, there were still a few brains then, and uh, they've they've all gone. Yeah. So what you've got is this bizarre situation that the subject was popularized at the very time when the establishment media decided it wasn't politically <laughs> interesting. Exactly. But then came internet to your rescue, I guess. <laughs> in a way, in a way that uh, yeah, the internet is as as yeah, in a way because of course the internet gives an access to this whole. But I mean, the internet is a double-edged sword, as you know. Yeah. So it, it's it's also given access to uh, Muslim fundamentalism. Yeah, know? Nazism, anything. Or anything. But you know, it, it is what it is. You're now introduced to the complete sewer of humanity. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, it goes from the seventh depth of hell to the seventh depth of heaven. I'd say. Yeah, well said. Well said, Alvin. I like If you know what to look for, that is. Now, I have to say that um, we started this as a hobby uh, this summer, our, our webcast, and we were amazed of the reception because we're focusing on obscure uh, subjects, but our pitch is... So-called obscure, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, it will become mainstream. But we have, like, uh, three things that I think others don't have. We do it in a light mode. We're not just sitting around complaining in negative energy. We're having laughs. We're, we're happy about it. We're going into depths, which is why we have you on, because we need someone who can deliver substance, right? Thank you. <laughs> And we see that our viewership has, uh, you know, it's, it just blew what we expected. It's uh, up to, I think it's up to 200,000 now. And that's just since the summer. So we expect uh, this um, uh, webcast to become pretty popular uh, when we have been around for a while. So. Great. Yeah, so these shows uh, that we're having, and the good thing with the internet that you won't see in TV is that when we record a show with you now, even if it's just like 5,000 people tuning in for the next couple of months, if you go for the next couple of years, <laughs> it may be 50,000 people mm. because it doesn't go away, right? Sure. It just spreads and it spreads and it spreads. So I think this is the future. The so-called alternative media is going to outlive and uh, actually be the death of traditional media. And it serves them well, if you ask me. Oh, yes. I mean, it's hopeless. Mm. Oh. Mm. Okay. Anyway, so uh, now let's uh, stop beating around the bush and get to the main topic. I ought to add, if people go to our presentation uh, of you at our website, they'll find links to all your books and your movies and uh, your website and all that. It's not out yet, but it's, it's going to come. So they can check it out for themselves. Yeah, I've just finished my 19th uh, commission book. Wow. Well, what's the l latest one on? 
is a biography of Gurdjieff. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Wow, looking really forward to that. It's called Gurdjieff, The Biography. <laughs> okay. A modest title. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I'll be the judge of that, I think, as the reader. Yes, <laughs> we have that privilege. <laughs> But today, today, we've... Uh, mm, Rosicrucian. Yes, let's try that. Mm. Now, uh, for most people, it's a very famous word, and uh, it, it even was back in the day. So, they pop up at some time. Let's just start from there. How on earth did this obscure group emerge in Europe? Well, it, it was a reactionary movement. It was reacting to two things. First of all, the uh, illegal publication of a manuscript called The Pharma Fraternitatis, or The Fame of the Fraternity, which had been in circulation by hand among interested parties since 1610. And then a man took it to Kassel and had it printed by Wilhelm Wessel in Kassel in 1614. And the timing of it was extraordinary and it, it, it was an explosion. When it was read, huge numbers of people wanted to either identify with the story that was in this document or claim to be <laughs> the fraternity of the Rose Cross. Now, that's the first reaction was to the document. And then, of course, you've got all the people reacting to the conditions of early 17th century Europe. And early 17th century Europe at this point is about to explode into the Thirty Years' War, where all the tension and misery of the, of the Lutheran period suddenly explodes in acts of, of hideous violence and hatred. And all the hidden tensions of the Reformation become manifest in blood. Mm. And there isn't a nation in Europe that isn't affected by that. And that disquiet, that, that powder keg affects many, many minds. And what the Rosicrucian story in the farmer was saying was, we are on the verge, if we want it, of a golden age of learning. But we must learn from our mistakes. We must read the signs in the heavens. And we must rediscover that purity of free knowledge which God has given us. And stop thinking in terms of entrenched private obsessions, whether they're national obsessions or university obsessions. And so it paints a picture of a world where knowledge is shared for the common good Uh, because God wills it so. So it's also saying, that the, most importantly, the hidden message is that the Reformation was a failure mm. because it failed to redeem the heart mm. of Europe. Uh, there were some nice doctrines. Uh, Luther had something to say about St. Paul and Augustine, which correctly challenged the pretensions of the Roman political system. But... In terms of a Christian Reformation, it, it in fact had replaced papism with Caesaro-papism. And in Germany, the German states, and in Sweden, the monarchs and princes had become the heads of the church, and in, and in England as well. And this was not uh, a Christian solution to the challenge of the time. So it was a, it was a document which touched on the political, social, and religious 
um, sensitivities of the time with an extraordinary promise. And it was regarded as a dangerous revolutionary tract, and it's no accident that the word manifesto has been attached to the three documents between published between 1614 and 1616, which are most associated with the movement. They're called manifestos with uh, true with consciousness that, of course, there was a communist manifesto. In other words, they were they they have become regarded as incendiary tracts. And the question I pose in my book, one of the many questions, is. Was that their intention? Mm-hmm. Good question. But you say uh, three docs. Uh, I count the General Reformation as one of them. So wouldn't that make four? I know. I, I think that's 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 uh, just a publisher's. Uh, I think the publisher threw that in. Ah, okay. So you don't regard that as a part of the real uh, Rosicrucian publication? No, I think it was part of the. In fact, of course, it was part of the problem. Because in 1614, when The Farmer was published with Boccalini's on the reformation of the whole wide world, which was a satirical piece by Traiano Boccalini, which was basically, if you read it, which I have, is advocating that reformation of the whole wide world is a quixotic impossibility uh, because people are too stupid and too earthbound and too materialistic ever to know what's good for them. At the end of the great conclave to decide the future of humanity, if you you know the story, um, so it is decided that they're going to lower the price of vegetables at which there is widespread rejoicing. And that's the cynicism which informs the uh, Boccalini's uh, Venetian tract on the Reformation. But because the title was on the reformation of the whole wide world, and it appeared on the same page, title page, of the 1614 document. People thought the Farmer Fraternitatis was itself the leading advocate of the reformation of the whole wide world. Hmm. And while while the Farmer was... because the main author of the farmer was interested in the spiritual reformation, which was really a medieval idea that the church should be spiritually renewed. Uh, this idea then became an incendiary and revolutionary one. Mm. And so you then had people within the first generation who wanted a worldwide revolution and you have proto-illuminati who, who were trying to form, you know, really wanted violent revolution. And so the, the farmer attracted the uh, the extremists very quickly, which is why its primary author, Johann Valentin André, withdrew from it because he very he didn't want it published in print. That was never his intention, and uh, it was a document to stimulate and for discussion and to see what was going on, whether people would be attracted to his essential ideas, but it got completely out of hand. <laughs> yeah, and you can say that. has again. now created a religion. Yeah. I mean, there's no question <laughs> that a re- Do you remember the Woody Allen film? Um, what is it? Uh, um, Annie Hall. And yeah. uh, Woody Allen goes to a concert... He's, he thinks he's going to a concert. It turns out he's going to see a guru with, with a reporter from Rolling Stone. And she says, I'm a Rosicrucian myself, meaning presumably she's met. And Woody Allen says, I can't subscribe to a religion that advertises in popular mechanics. 
<laughs> I, I think that's uh, that's what happens to Andre's great vision of 1610. Yeah. By 1977, has become that. No secret, he was uh, referring to Armorque most probably. <laughs> well, of course it would, be, because Armorque uh, sold itself as a hobby. You could buy the hobby kit, as you know, Al. Yeah. But uh, you seem to take for granted here that Andrea was the real author of the, even all the manifestos, it seems, not just the chemical. Well, let's start with the manifestos. You said the fame of the brotherhood. What's the second and third? The Farmer is the first publication. In yep. 1615, it was republished in uh in Frankfurt with the Confessio Fraternitatis, the Confession of the Fraternity. Now, the authorship of that document, a very large part of it is taken from the writings of an extraordinary and I, I, most extraordinarily lovable man called Tobias Hess. I don't say that just because he has my name. <laughs> Tobias Hess was a Tübingen doctor of jurisprudence. He was, a, he was a doctor of medicine. He was a Paracelsian, which meant he was... Uh, regarded with suspicion, he was a Paracelsian medic, yeah. uh, and he was a theologian of enormous depth and Christian sincerity in all the best senses. And he was he was the greatest inspiration for André. So he's probably the main inspirer of the figure of Christian Rosenkreutz, or Freitas C.R., as we must call him at this point, because we only get the name Christian Rosenkreutz from, from the title of, of, of The Chemical Wedding, which André publishes himself, I think, in 1616, hmm. through Zetzner of Strasbourg. And that's, that's a separate publication to it's the... It's completely separate, and of course different in some. Mm. But I think the reason um, Andre has it published, I'm sure he, he was involved with the publication, was to say, look, this was only meant to be an allegory, a story. You've taken it literally, you fools. You know, and by taking it literally, you miss the essence of it. And history subsequently, unfortunately, has taken that road. Everything that comes in this world is distorted. And The Farmer is one of the most distorted books on, on earth. I've been, you know, it's fascinating if you work in this field. There are people for whom the literal truth of The Farmer is as significant as the literal meaning of, of, of the Bible. You'll find that all over anyway, on all areas. Yeah, but it, it's kind of, what it's done is to remove the subject from academic seriousness so that historians generally are ignorant of these things and therefore they cannot assess correctly very important movements in the 17th century because they are they are pre-prejudiced pre-prejudiced i know that's a double uh, a double uh, meaning of pre but it's a pre, pre they're pre-prejudiced against esoteric material pre-biased we could say then yeah, if you like yeah they're, they're pre-biased against okay but um, you mentioned tubingen and i read uh, tobias that uh, Around the court of Tübingen, uh, some 20 or 30 years, uh, don't arrest me on the details here, but uh, considerable time before the publications of the manifestos, that there was this uh, play script that had attached to it one of the drafts of what became the manifestos. And this was at a time period when Andrea was a child. Do you know anything about this? No, I don't. Never heard of it. Okay, okay, because I, I wish I could uh, provide you with some concrete info here, because uh, this is one of the reasons that I, for many years, have been a bit skeptical to ascribing everything to Andrea, just carte blanche, 
Uh, and he did, uh, of course, deny authorship, but that means nothing. I mean, <laughs> he would have done that anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and indeed, your title of it is Invisible. So a clue here is that they didn't want to be. Like, if you identified as a Rosicrucian, you were not a true Rosicrucian. Yeah. The idea was that if you wanted to respond to this movement, then you, you were supposed to write to the fraternity. Mm. But it was never clear how you could do that. And we see this problem in the life of Adam Hasselmeer and Augustus von Anhalt, who was a, a, an important Protestant prince in northern Germany. He wanted to know who this Rose, Augustus von Anhalt, who based at Plutzkau near Halle in Germany, and he wanted to know who these people were. He was totally transfixed by the first manifesto. He wanted to, and he'd, he'd read it before it was published. And um, he'd been shown him by a Tyrolean doctor and Paracelsian uh, enthusiast called Adam Hasselmeer, who was a notary public to the Archduke Maximilian of the Tyrol. And he wanted to know who they were and could he find them, and he wanted to publish more of their works because the first work said that they, were, they had a follow-up work called Their Confession, which would explain in 37 rules uh, what they really stood for. Mm. And uh, we, we get this feeling very early on that, that membership of this group was something difficult to handle. You couldn't claim to be a member because the members were basically uh, unknown and they were only referred to by their initials. Hmm. And um, no, again, this whole problem, and how do you take this document? Is it an allegory? Is it a fact? Hmm. What is it? There's no doubt that if you read the original farmer, you're dealing with a, a text that purports to come from a genuine group of people and that you are called to answer it. You are called, you're summoned to respond to this call. And so, and people did. And the way they did it was by publishing pamphlets. And these pamphlets either said, yes, I'm with you, which is pretty well what I think Andre wanted. People say, yes, I'm with this idea. Or they purported to generally explain what the idea was. That wasn't such a good idea. Or they were hostile and said, no, 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 these people are wicked. Right. Um, these are Rosicrucian witches. They're trying to distort the life of, of the Western world. They're, it's a subversive work, which is very interesting. Yeah. So you have this for and against thing, that, and you have a paper war starts. The idea of whether you could claim, I don't know how many, I think any claim that people made to be part of the Brotherhood was um, with a certain amount of irony. Ah. Um, I don't think anyone... I'm trying to think. There were, I think, there were some writings where people claimed to, that they were Rosicrucians themselves. They were part of this fraternity, but generally speaking, people say they were in sympathy with it. Some would claim to know, some would know who was behind it. They say, "I know who these people are," and the hostile people would would say that. But it was it was very quickly grasped that these that the the material had originally come from Tübingen. Mm. And uh, that was the information given to Augustus von Anhalt. But where were they published first time? Was that in, in uh, Germany? They were published in Kassel. For the first time? Yeah, mm. by, uh, under the, under, the publisher worked for Moritz von Hessen. 
who was the landgrave, landgraf of uh, of Kassel. But it did, didn't take long time before they were published in France and England and Italy too. Oh, almost immediately. Almost yeah. immediately. Mm. Yeah. After 1614, but the manuscript had been circulating in 19, uh, sorry, 1610, mm. four years earlier, been circulating. We know um, because Adam Hasselmeyer had a copy, and we know there. Are, I think there are about three manuscript copies which are before the publication. Right. As there's, I think there's two in London uh, that I can think of, and I think there's, there's another one in Germany that um, that. Andre's friend Basold had. But that, that would be the two first manifestos, right? The third was made later. Yeah, it's not a manifesto, the third one. No. You can interpret the pub somebody published it. He'd written it, we know from, from his own uh, writings, Andre. Andre definitely wrote uh, the Chemische Hochzeit, mm. the chemical wedding. He wrote it in 1606. Uh, that is written. We have the manuscript evidence. Now, whether the document that came out as the Kimisha Hochzeit in 1616 was identical to his original manuscript of 10 years earlier. We don't know. He might have changed it. He might have developed it. Somebody else might have rewritten it. We don't know. But we can definitely identify that document as the work of the young Andre in 1606. And it's a romantic work. It's an alchemical work. Uh, Andre's mother practiced alchemy. Uh, she, was a, she, she made medicines. Uh, in Tübingen, and uh, you know, his great interest was was medicine. You know, and this whole idea of healing the Christian. Yeah. We forget this idea today. It's because our health service in the Western world has been completely taken over by the state, by medical authorities. We forget that in the 17th century, many of the major doctors were also clergy, and healing came from the ch healing came from the church, not just. Uh, spiritual healing. No, well, we can go back to the original healers. Yeah, but this is a terribly important thing because there are two factors about the Rosicrucian manifestos that are constantly forgotten uh, in the excitement about their esoteric meaning. But the fact is, the two major interests of the original Rosicrucian writings: one is medicine, and the other is mechanics, technology. Interesting. Yeah, that's really what they're interested in, and. You know, we just don't get that. We don't realize that in those days, all true healing was a form of miracle. Mm. When people were healed, when they actually saw a doctor and survived, it was a bloody miracle, you know, to actually survive. Yeah, but doesn't Michael Myers' book on the laws of the Rosicrucians, doesn't that say explicit that they are gathering to cure the sick gratis? Yes, but even though it's plain and clear, people don't understand the importance of that. Mm. It was a critical idea. It's the healing idea is is one of the most central points about it. Mm. And this is where the Rosicrucians were the document is so important because what Andre was saying was look, if a man is cured, does he care whether he's cured by Galen, the official yeah. founder of Western medicine, or by Paracelsus, the heretic? If a man's cured It's like the Shakespeare play, A Rose by Any Other Name Was Smell as Sweet. Yeah. If Paracelsus's spiritual ideas, crazy as they may be, cure the man, then, the, then it's as, as important as if you followed the book. Right. And this is the whole liberation idea that, that Andre is saying. He says, let us go with the facts. Let us go with experience. Let's go with universal truth. Let's not prejudice 
and say, you cannot cure. You know, it's a bit like the Bible when it says, you know, Jesus was accused of, accused of curing people on the Sabbath. And the Jews who were his opponents got very upset because he cured on the Sabbath, which meant work. <laughs> it didn't matter to them no. that the man lived. It mattered the day he lived. Yeah. And this is the kind of mentality that the... the this is the, the true Christianity that André is trying to say. The true Christian must be concerned with absolute truth. This is what Christianity stands for. And he made this very clear in all his subsequent works. If you want to know what the farmer means, you've got to read André's works that were published after it because they illuminate the meaning. Unfortunately, the esoteric movement isn't interested in the Christian theology of Andre, it's interested in the excitement of a secret body of adepts working for the reformation of the world in secret. <laughs> yeah, the conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, that's what still gets them all excited today. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the real Andre, the real Rosicrucian story is, you could say, is, is about what his friend Andre's friend Christoph Bezold called the virtue of the simplest simplicity. That is the spirit of it. Hmm. If you're not interested in the virtue of the simplest simplicity, you are going to miss it, miss it, miss it. You can say, oh, yeah, 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 but I know, but what about the astral body? Or what about my, you know, where's my spirit going to, oh, for goodness sake, it's nothing to do with that. Hmm. The, the farmer is a desperate plea for truth in the face of ignorance. Hmm. And you would think that every academic body in Europe would embrace the farmer as a kind of founding document of a new world, but they don't. No. And this makes me wonder that maybe André was right. The (laughs) The universities are no less political than the filthiest political party group or convention. Or religion. Or, yes, or anything where people get mm. together and give each other dignified names. I'm Prime Minister, I'm President, I'm Chancellor of the Exchequer, I'm bloody who am I, I'm the Pope. I'm the... Oh, I see where Andrea went wrong. He should have invented fancy hats to put on. Then, well, <laughs> then it would be accepted. He didn't have to, it, it was done for him. And eventually you end up in the 18th century with the Golden Rosenkreuz yeah. with a Masonic concept of hierarchy. So that, med- so that experiments in alchemy, which could have healed people, were interrupted yeah. by German, uh, oh, no, you have not sent your uh, alchemical theory to the Oberhauptdirektor. <laughs> oh, in two years' time, we'll decide whether you can continue. Yeah. I mean, you've got to read Renko Geffart's book on uh, neo-Rosicrucians in the 18th century. It's hilarious. Because you see then the corruption of the idea. Mm -hmm. And pretty well that's what we've seen since. So I'm personally very excited about the purity and goodness of André. And if you don't understand that, your concept of Rosicrucianism will be lost in theosophical complexities which aren't worth the, the attention other than for historical reasons, clarity, if you like. Mm. Is his uh, other books as available today on the general market? No, of course not. Of course not. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's the, whole, that's the whole irony of the thing. Yeah. Is his greatest book on truth is on the subject of truth. It's called Christian Mythologies. has never been translated from the Latin into English wow. or 
modern language. But the farmer you can get, you know, in in, in Argentina, Brazil, you name it. Yeah. Uh, yes, the, the fantasy of André is embraced, but the truth is not. Hmm. And all modern Rosicrucian organizations are children of the false interpretation of André. It's a tragedy, but when you think about it and you think about how religions develop and the nature of human the human psyche, it's no surprise mm. that you haven't heard the true story. Mm. Hmm. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. I'd say that your home country was in a terrible state under Elizabeth. People were suffering big time. And there was this uh, totalitarianism under Elizabeth that well, fortunately changed a little uh, around King James. Well, I don't know if that's a fair picture. Well, you, you painted them. Well, no, because it, it was often called the golden age of Elizabeth. And when James right. I came to the throne in 1603, while a lot of some people were very excited... Uh, particularly foreign people. <laughs> um, Catholics. The, yeah. The, well, no, no, no. The, the, there was a Protestant excitement because he had been raised a Protestant, whereas right. Elizabeth uh, was, while she, was, she wasn't Protestant theologically, she was head of the Church of England, but she had a tolerant view. Her ministers were constantly pushing her into intolerant actions. Ah. She was eventually... Against her will, she said, made to sign the death warrant of Mary, Queen of Scots. Right. Who was James I's mother. mother yeah. Mm. Um, but the fact is, she was never happy with that. She said, I do, not have a, I do not have a window into a man's soul. In other words, it's not for the state to inquire as to the salvation of the individual. It's the, the job of the country is to uh, erect a Christian ideal that all men can follow. But she was persuaded that the Catholic Church was so politically active that she would have to arrest uh, priests and so on. Um, but people look back on Elizabeth's period, and of course it's all relative. Yeah. They look back on the Elizabethan age, especially in James's reign, as a golden age, because the reign of James was extraordinarily difficult and troubled, and James was a very unreliable king. Uh, nobody knew what he really wanted because while he started his reign with a strong image of uniting the Protestant princes of the north, Sweden, Denmark, Germany, the German princes, against the Counter-Reformation, the fact was he was also thinking about marrying his his uh, second eldest son, Charles, who eventually became king, to the Spanish to a Spanish princess. In other words, he thought he could play... Um, play both, both sides. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, and that was going to, that created a lot of problems. And it's why you, you have things like Michael Meyer coming over in 1612 and sending him a card saying, you know, may you, um, support the Rose. Oh. Now the Rose was a nickname for his daughter Elizabeth, who had, who had married the elector of the Palatine, Frederick. Right. Um, so they were trying to encourage James to, persist with the union of Protestant princes because it was felt at the time that the Catholic armies would at some point unite and try to destroy the Protestant Reformation. Hmm. Now that's the context in which the uh, in which the manifestos appeared. Exactly, right. Hey, uh, just a little footnote, but do you think Francis Bacon was uh, the illegitimate 
son of uh, Elizabeth? You've heard that uh, claim. No, that's a new one. <laughs> I thought I'd heard everything. Really? That's a new one? Yeah, that's a new one to me. Wow, okay. Well, I've never heard that one. I, I think she'd have been difficult to find the time. Um, <laughs> right. W what about the gunpowder plot? What's your take on that? Well, I, I follow the general view that it was a Catholic reaction to the idea that under James... They, uh, the, many Catholics thought that they were were going to come under increasing pressure. Mm. That was in the early part of the reign, um, 1605, the gunpowder plot. Yeah. So he he hadn't even been in power for two years in England. It was Catholic despair, wasn't it? It was an extreme Catholic despair. We've got to remember that the the Catholic Church at that time were were promoting what we would now call terrorist actions. Mm. They, the, the Catholic Church issued what the Muslims would call a fatwa uh, against Elizabeth. They said, in other words, they said it is the duty of every Catholic to deprive this woman of her power, i.e., her life. And the Catholics were actually given absolution by the Vatican if they killed her. That is a fact. Mm. And. Uh, it's amazing in the light of that fact that, that James um, uh, could tolerate the, you know, he was interested in an ironic solution to the whole. But he thought he could please all sides and uh, for reasons of his own. It's a very complex matter. Yeah. I don't But he was brought up in Scotland, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Don't you think he may have had some proto-Masonic influence then on him, which may explain his uh, views? Well, the divine weeks and works. Um, he had a hermetic. I think he, elements of his education were hermetic. Mm. Um, he was familiar with William Shaw, who was head of Scotland's Masons. But masonry in Scotland, and it was never called Freemasonry in Scotland in this period. No. That is critical. The Mason organization. I think he was all these stories in Masonic circles in the 17th century say that he was an honorary Mason. Is his name in a lodge in Scotland? No, it isn't. To become an honorary Mason that period, all you had to do was employ Masons. Mm. So the fact that he had Masons working for him, run at that time by William Shaw, uh, would have made him an honorary Mason. And I'm sure he would have been very happy to have been elevated to some status within what was a, effectively a small guild system in Scotland. Mm. But the difference between masonry in Scotland and Freemasonry as it develops is, is a huge gulf. All the evidence for speculative or symbolic Freemasonry is primarily English evidence. Uh, but having said that, there's very little of it. But uh, obviously alchemists have been associated to the Rosicrucians, and alchemists themselves had this tradition of not publishing their name but remaining anonymous often they just call themselves philosophers so we see also that there were well because it was illegal you know yeah. it was actually illegal to be an alchemist yeah and we understand from just what little you've shared with us now on the political climate of the time how loaded it was with intrigues uh, everything was dangerous you could get your head chopped off and even bacon himself got in trouble multiple times well let's to put it to the audience who are listening let's put it like this if we say every time we say alchemist 
read nuclear physicists. Right. You'll get the idea. Good um, comparison. So if we look at some of the famous people around, isn't it true then that there was – uh, a few hermeticists with influence on different royal courts. I'm thinking of not just Francis Bacon versus Elizabeth and James, but also uh, John Dee. And, uh, yeah, well, you can take it from there. Well, you'd have to name names. Um, I mean, uh, John Dee was not terribly interested in practicing alchemy. But they were he, hermeticists, both of them. They were certainly, well, Bacon. He was aware of the literature. He was sympathetic, but it's very interesting that William Blake, who's really a Gnostic uh, philosopher, self-made, when he studied uh, Bacon, he regarded Bacon as one of the, the materialists Actually, if you read Advancement of Learning and the Novum Organum and Silva Silvarum, the key texts of Bacon, he, mm. he thought that the macrocosm, microcosm idea was vastly overrated and had been taken, as he said, to extremes. Um, I don't think Bacon was a great philosopher, but he had a great knowledge of philosophy. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And he was a great scientist. No, I don't think so. Really? You're killing a huge myth then. Let's hear it. All these myths want killing. You know, I mean, Bacon <laughs> was only, like all these figures, he got used after his death as a figurehead. Mm. And uh, Newton the same. You know, Newton in British uh, ideology and history is supposed to be the founder of modern science unless you want Bacon as your founder of modern yeah. science. I mean, how many founders of modern <laughs> science are there? Pythagoras. Yeah. My claim is Pythagoras. <laughs> Who are these founders of modern science? And then what is modern science? Right. Well, modern science is what 19th century materialists, scientists, wanted to believe was true. Mm. But these people in the 17th century had very many, many, as I've studied, they've had many divergent views. And um, the complexity of those views today means nothing to us. So we use these simple, like schoolboy ideas of what is modern science, what isn't. And you have historians of science saying, well, the importance of experiment. But John Dee was the, one of the first advocates of what he called experience-based sciences. And by experience, he meant you had to see it, practice it, and do it before you needed to believe it. But, mm. of course, as he wrote that, he was also full of uh, inherited beliefs. But he loved Roger Bacon because Roger Bacon was a practical scientist. I often think some of the references to Bacon at the period are actually referring to Roger to Roger Francis. Hmm. Because Roger well, Bacon is was was regarded by 1623 in Paris as a found as one of the Rosicrucian Brotherhood, uh, not Francis. This is this is uh, very much later. It's because Francis Bacon published a book, or rather, after his death, at New, New Atlantis, Atlantis yes. hmm. in 1627. But New Atlantis is using the farmer, uh, but he's using it for Bacon's priorities and. A complete jackanapes called John Hayden. He, he was a charlatan. Wrote a book in the 1650s called Voyage to the Land of the Rosicrucians, and he completely mixed up. Ooh. He mixed up uh, New Atlantis with the farmer, and created this myth of the Rosicrucians. One of the creators of the myth in England. So you know what I'm trying to say is, go to the original. Uh, you, after that, it becomes it becomes crazy. You know, mm -hmm. Rosicrucianism by 1660 in England means crazy left wing uh, fantasist 
change the world at any cost, revolutionary lunacy, Oliver Cromwell, Republican, you know, all, all of that. It's become that in England. In Sweden, they were executing people for Rosicrucianism by, by, by that period. Right. It, the, the, this movement is much more interesting and complex than, you know, you're getting your, your standard Michael Bajant type books, yeah. paperbacks. Mm. Um, common knowledge of this doesn't cover it at all. It's, it's hugely more varied. What we're witnessing in the 17th century is the birth of a new religion. Mm. Mm. A new age religion. The religion of the new age, yes, hmm. which will go through incredible changes. It will emerge as theosophy in the 19th century. It will become something else in the 1960s, and it will keep going on uh, because what it actually is, of course, it's all children of the Gnosis. It's, it's, hmm. it's the wayward, wild children of Sophia. But isn't it inherent in Gnosis itself that it's doomed to be like that because you don't have a totalitarian structure? It is all about your own uh, approach to the divine. So it's kind of, I think it's kind of implicit in the system that it will go all ways, yes, it's, <laughs> all different ways. I mean, you see even the darkest side in Nazism. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I don't think you see it in Nazism at all. Um, oh, but, interesting. Uh, I think that's one of the, the most dangerous. There are, you know, there are areas where you you can, you, you can know. Um, that's not so. The Nazism is a reaction to the gnosis. Then it's a hijacking of. Well, the, the record of the Nazi Party with regard to the Gnostic movements of Germany was entirely and without any exceptions totally repressive. They arrested uh, Freemasons. They burnt down the Goetheanum of Rudolf Steiner. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, but their SS cult stole from their from those beliefs uh, to create its own dark version. Wouldn't you say that? I wouldn't. No, I, I don't know. You're ascribing creativity to the SS. I don't think there's any creativity. Oh no, a theft. I'm ascribing theft to them. Well, whatever fantasies may have passed through Heinrich Himmler's mind, you know, if you want to go there. Yeah. Using black uniforms and standing around uh, Wevelsburg pretending to be a grail knight. You think that's <laughs> Rosicrucianism? Come off. It, no, it's, it's, it's a disguise. It's a theater. No, no. The Rosicrucian in Nazi Germany was, was somebody who had to keep it very quiet. Yeah. Yeah, they killed off people who uh, identified with those things. No, yeah, you're, of course, look, the, you can't accept the will of a Fuhrer. You know, if you're looking for God's will. Okay, it was just an example anyway. But what I was getting at was that they perverted. Well, it wor no, but it's serious today because people pick up the stuff on the internet, mm. and they, they, you know, one symbol leads to another. Right. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. And before you know where you are, you've got you've got massacres in Oslo. You know, people claiming to be new Templars and stuff. Yeah, it's it's this completely. Yeah, it's this completely lack of critical thought and uh, source criticism. Well, yeah, but it's a it's a lack of knowledge. You know, our children at school are not taught esoteric history at any point, and yet it's now a very important field. Mm. But I, I I think this is nothing new. This is, uh, I mean, one of the reasons why Nazis, the SS cult, could. Uh, take symbols and uh, uh, dresses up as their own uh, created uh, version of history or of tradition. 
Well, they were following. Remember that the real inspiration for Heinrich Himmler was was not Rosicrucian; it was the Catholic Church. Yeah, good he was point. trying to produce an alternative to Catholicism, and we know that the Catholic Church has tried to uh, take elements from the Rosicrucian tradition. I mean, they even have their own Masonic orders and so. Forth. You're referring to the Jesuits? Well, the Jesuits. I wasn't referring to Jesuits actually. Okay. No, I was thinking of things like the Order of Saint Columba and their own sort of masonry groups. Uh, but also there were there were attempts made in the 17th century to come up with a Catholic <laughs> Rose Cross uh, organization. Yeah? You know, oh yeah, I mean, you know, they, they saw something was going on. We better have our version. Right. Right. So there was a spot, you know, you had that. And of course, a lot of the Ro- near Rosicrucianism was highly Catholic in Austria. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, ironic, isn't it? <laughs> it is, and yeah, it is, and it isn't, sort of thing. I mean, Andrei himself was much more friendly towards the Catholic Church. He had friends in the seminaries, huh. and he wanted a unity uh, of Christian people in Europe. He he regarded the Reformation as a disaster, which is a unique position. Yes, he, which and, I mean, I think historically, uh, I think the very arguably true. Uh, he believed the Reformation would, in fact, lead to the, the, the annihilation of, of Christianity in Western Europe. But he was identified as a Protestant, right? By whom? Well, uh, historians, I guess. When you read about it? He is not a Protestant. He is sympathetic to the radical Reformation. Schwenkfeld, Weigel, Paracelsus, he's sympathetic, but he is not at all. He's certainly not... He was a Lutheran clergyman, yeah, but I, 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 it would have been wonderful to spend an afternoon with him. And <laughs> right. And I think you'll have found that, you remember, Luther also retained the many Catholic doc, a great deal of Catholic doctrine. Yeah. Um, no, I think Andrei was one of the good men who longed for the unity of the church, but a church that was truly tolerant. Right. Uh, he understood that it was not the right of the church to dictate doctrine in detail. They should be, the church must bear witness to the simple. The church, as he saw it, was started by simple men, uneducated men, unsophisticated. Log, they were not logically sophisticated theologians. They were not inquisitors. He saw the spirit of the church essentially as one of divine love. And next to divine love, you have divine wisdom. Mm. And if we aspire to a higher wisdom and a higher sense of love and truth, we will be closer to the spirit of Jesus. This Jesus mihi omnia is the principle of the Rosicrucian Manifesto, which is avoided by sort of neo-pagan Rosicrucians, which we've seen, you know, Mm. since the 19th century particularly. Mm. But it's, it sounds to me then that we are dealing with something which is much closer to the Gnostics then. Well, only uh, close in so far as some of the Gnostics were close to the Christian spirit. Now, what is the Christian spirit? Well, you've got to, you, if you want to know what the Christian spirit is, you're asking the question, who is my neighbor? And look at the story of the Good Samaritan and you'll get the idea. It is the practice in love of the healing love of God. And that is what the whole concept was about. Hmm. That's what it was about. It wasn't advocating any particular philosophy. It was saying, uh, look, you're rejecting Paracelsus, 
you're advocating a neo-Aristotelian concept of religion. This is all false. We're not in the position to judge the wisdom of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we uh, we must attain to it. We do we we are not above it. So a dependence on divine mind. Mm-hmm. You know, you can see in all this. There's a hermetic feeling, a universalist feeling that the universe is crying out, crying out uh, for the recognition of its divine origin, and that we must seek ultimate unity. We must seek ultimate truth. This is all part of what Andre is saying. We must put aside our differences. We must share. Mm. And he's up against uh, a political... Everyone. <laughs> he's up against the world. I mean, of yeah. course. But that is that what a Christian is. If a mm. Christian is not contra mundum, he is not walking in the path of Christ. And the Rosicrucian movement is a Christian movement at root and source. It was never intended to go in the direction of pure esotericism that it has taken. In fact, I would say no, not pure esotericism. I would say impure esotericism. Mm -hmm. It's a corrupted source. But, you know, it's also for many the beginning. It's the first step. It's certainly superior to the kind of religious education children are getting at schools today, which seems strikes me as being uh, non-spiritual and... Where it's got anything going for it, it's ethical, but basically it's a politically convenient form of religion. Mm. Okay, but let's let's leave the neo-Rosicrucian perspective uh, now because uh, we're not that interested in that anyway. I want to go to the roots here, and I take it that you reject. Do do you reject the notion that there may have been some kind of formally or informally group or circle, uh, maybe around Andrea or in Europe, that can be referred to as the people behind the Rosicrucian idea or manifestos? Or Well, yes, yes, but there are two, those are two different things. To say that there is an association of interest, mm. which is promoting ideas, which the, uh, the allegory... Like a network... Well, there was obviously a network. Let's hear it. It wasn't very extensive. I have the feeling that Andre and Tobias Hess were looking for connections. Mm. I think they were, it was an exploratory, a bit like the voyages of discovery had sent ships out to find the Northwest Passage, had sent ships to what we now call America. I think, you know, they had this idea that, that we must find out who our, who our friends are. Mm. Mm. We're stuck in Tübingen. We know a bit about what's going on in Ulm. We know a bit about Kassel. We know, I've got some friends in Sweden. Uh, we have a friend in Venice, Wilhelm Wenzer and Tobias Adami, were two Germans with Venetian contacts, and they were talking to people in Tübingen about what was going on in Venice, which at the time the papacy was trying to destroy the independence of Venice. They, it was an exploratory operation. It was, it was to find out really in a way who our friends are. And is there anybody out there? Is there anybody out there? Yeah. Is there anybody listening to uh-huh. this, uh, new message? This new message, which is that, that if we, uh, put right the fracture of the Reformation, is there anyone who understands how this can be done through the sphere of knowledge. It is a university movement. There's no doubt of it. It's, it's 
a lot of Andre's work is aimed at the corruption not only of the church, well, we know all about that, Luther had made that clear, uh, but it's about the corruption of the new 17th century Caesaro-Papist uh, uh, states, um, quasi-states of, of Germany particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, the role of princes in deciding what is true. Right. It's very worrying. Thomas More had had his head chopped off in England for saying that the the king might not be the man uh, who can decide truth. Mm-hmm. This is the issue. Uh, one of the fundamental is the authority. Where does authority lie? So it's it's political and religious at the same time. Well, it, it in those days it is inseparable. Yeah, you cannot possibly. The politia is meant to be a reflection on earth of the divine economy in heaven. Hmm. As above, so below them. <laughs> yes, of course, yes. I mean, otherwise, of course, the claim of kings to be uh, infallible, frankly, or uh, divinely guided or the divine right of kings is only based on this idea that monarchy in heaven must be represented by monarchy on earth. All that happens in the Reformation is that monarchy is removed from Rome and put in Paris, London, Stockholm, uh, you name it, you know. Mm. But, uh, okay, what about other people who's traditionally associated with this then, like Michael Meyer, like John Dee? Yeah, well, Dee D has been called a sort of proto-Rosicrucian, but only by post-Rosicrucians. Right. Nobody thought so at his time, you know. He's interesting because he was an irenicist. He wanted, he was very interested in the Catholic, with a rapprochement with Catholic uh, theology. This was of great interest to him. He knew, like so many of the really brains of the period who weren't bigoted, he knew that the Reformation was a catastrophe. He knew that even though the Inquisition was disgraceful, even though the Pope was in the pocket of the Habsburgs, Mm. even though Spain behaved like they were God Almighty on earth and, and so on, but he knew that the principle of the Reformation of, of the Lutheran Reformation and the Calvinist Reformation had just created a sectarian, narrow-minded, bigoted, uh, new, new church that were effectively and politically as oppressive as what they were allegedly against. Mm. It was a bit like, if you can imagine the Russian Revolution, the Democrat, Kerensky, you know, the Democrats. Yeah, social Democrats. Uh, yeah, they're saying, well, you know, did we get rid of the Tsar so we could have Lenin. Mm. And this was the realization of the the more sensitive and intelligent peoples. Post-Reformation Europe was practically more unpleasant than (laughs) pre-Reformation Europe, in practical terms. So careful what you ask for. (laughs) Well, yeah. You know, the system might be corrupt, but it might, you know, I think a lot of, I think even William Blake said there was probably more practical freedom for individuals, as long as you don't challenge the system. This is the important thing. Mm-hmm. If you don't challenge the system, there's probably more practical freedom under a papal autocracy than under a Protestant one. Yeah, we saw this with the revolutions too. Yeah. They, it ate its children, as it's saying. So Inevitably, because power is what is – in a revolution, all that happens is power is moved from one place yeah. to another. The problem is power. Yeah, the structures. Uh, mm. if, you can have a, if you can have a revolutionary government that actually doesn't, isn't interested in power, well, of course, it's not going to last very long. 
<laughs> no, good point. You know, because without power, you can do nothing. So the more true the authority, the less able it is to practice authority. Look at Europe today. You know, look at the utter, 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 utter legless, spineless nature of it. And you can, you can see the problem. They're neither pope nor peasant. Hmm. You know, they don't know what they are. They say they're Democrats, but they won't. You know, which people do, do they vote? <laughs> Whose vote are they interested? Mm. You know, it's catastrophic. Yeah, history repeats itself, no doubt. Well, it's, 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 we're living in this age and we're talking about Rosicrucianism. The ideals of Rosicrucianism are very much relevant, or I wouldn't have spent or arguably wasted my life on this subject. What Andre was talking about is, is, is as important today as it was in the early 17th century. Mm. He was talking about a universal fact of, of human nature and the nature of uh, God and the soul. That's what these issues address. And uh, it, it's, it's timeless. The reason you're in, you wouldn't be asking me these questions if there wasn't something in it. Mm. And it isn't just a historical discussion about the 30 years war. Mm. You know, we're talking about where we, where are we going as human beings? Mm. No, your point is very well taken, and uh, yeah, you have uh, you have really uh, made a, a case for that. But still, there is all these loose ends that we have to address. Then, even if yeah. if you're coming back to this original point. And at this point, I think we should take a break. Okay. And uh, when we come back in part two, we're going to explore deeper the Rosicrucian current, the philosophy behind it all, the manifestos, the purpose, and the usual suspects, the central figures, people associated with or who may be behind the, the involved in the Rosicrucian current. We're going to look into the Shakespeare mystery, you know, the work of uh, Peter Amundsen. And uh, we'll also look into other aspects like ties to Sufism. And uh, we'll also take a deeper look at the Freemasonry movement and uh, links to Rosicrucianism. So stay tuned, people, and do come back to check that out. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks.